Welcome to the Basic Scotland podcast series. These are brief snapshots of topics relevant to pre-hospital care, predominantly within Scotland, and some deep dives into specialist areas with experts from a wide range of disciplines. My name is Dave Strachan. I'm an Army Surgical Registrar, a Basics Responder, and a Mountain Rescue Doctor. We at Basic Scotland are very grateful to NHS Education for Scotland for all of their support with these podcasts. Hello, my name is James Stevenson. I'm an emergency medicine consultant based at Crosshouse Hospital in Kilmarnock. I'm also a consultant with Emergency Medical Retrieval Service, EMRS, which is the adult component of ScotStar, which is the National Retrieval Service. I work for EMRS West, which is based in the ScotStar base at Glasgow Airport. We're co-located there with the paediatric and the neonatal teams and with the ambulance service, air wing paramedics who staff both the rotary wing and the fixed wing aircraft. There's also an EMRS North base at Aberdeen Airport. In EMRS West, we have two teams available 24 hours a day from three separate shifts. We usually work as a team of two, a consultant from emergency medicine, anaesthetics or intensive care medicine, and a senior registrar. Or alternatively, it's a consultant with an advanced retrieval practitioner. The advanced retrieval practitioners come from a paramedical or a nursing background and they have enhanced and extended training. Both the consultants and the retrieval practitioners all have extensive training in aeromedical transfers, critical care and in pre-hospital medicine. The EMRS teams can be tasked by road or by air and we have a number of clinical roles, including primary retrievals where we're tasked for the ambulance service trauma desk to provide pre-hospital critical care and that's mostly for trauma patients. Secondary retrievals where we retrieve patients requiring critical care from remote and rural healthcare facilities, usually transferring them to tertiary centres mainly in the central belt or in Aberdeen and also provide clinical support to the Scottish Ambulance Service in the event of a major incident and that includes provision of a medical incident officer, site medical teams, a tactical medical advisor to the ambulance control room if that's required and other clinical personnel to the site of the major incident. Unfortunately, I've been involved in a couple of major incidents in the last year where I've had to take on the role of medical incident officer which I'm sure as you can imagine wasn't really a lot of fun and it certainly wasn't what I was expecting when I started my shift in either of those days. I thought for the purpose of the talk it might first be useful to give you a definition of what a major incident is. Then I would plan to give an oversight of what might be expected and required of the first doctor and scene. Then we could have a look at a couple of the incidents that I've been involved in, which will give a bit of a flavour as to how things evolve and pan out as the incident progresses. There are a number of possible ways that you could define a major incident. However, the definition that's used in the Major Incident Medical Management and Support course, that's the MIMS course, is pretty useful as it means that whether or not the incident is defined as major will very much depend on where the incident is and the resources that are immediately available to manage it. For example, a car with four occupants coming off the road and rolling down an embankment on the island of Tyree, where there's only one general practice, it's a very different incident to the same vehicle rolling over on the M8 motorway between Glasgow and Edinburgh. 
If you're likely to face the situation of having to attend a major incident and function as a medical incident officer, or, or even just to have to provide medical care at the incident, there's a fair amount of preparation that you might like to consider having undertaken well in advance. In EMRS, we work to a large number of standard operating procedures and operational guidelines. Our guideline for major incidents is 52 pages long, but it's tailored specifically to the way that we work, and it's carefully written to ensure that it integrates with the Scottish Ambulance Service Major Incident Plan, and also dovetails very effectively with local hospital plans. The time to make yourself familiar with the Major Incident Plan is definitely not while you're en route to said incident. Trying to do this just reveals a huge lack of forward planning. We use a series of action cards like these that are extracted from the main plan and they cover the key points for each individual medical role. The cards serve as aid memoirs and prompts and they're really invaluable when you're in a difficult situation and you're mentally maxed out. Our document's very specific to our operation, but I would still encourage you to get sight of and review any major incident plans for your local hospitals and also to look at the ambulance service plan. Both of these are going to provide really good background and a lot of insight into the way that things are supposed to work and also to what's likely to happen at a major incident. I would also recommend trying to attend any of the joint service major incident training exercises that happen regularly and in particular pay attention to their debriefs. This again gives familiarisation with how the different services work, how they integrate with each other, and it gives you an idea of the command structure within each. It's very important to have an idea of the roles and capabilities of the other agencies that are present, as although the primary aim for all is to preserve life and to limit harm to patients, each organisation has a number of other roles that they need to fulfil. The police, they have responsibility to ensure security at the scene and identify if there has been, and then, if so, investigate any crime that may have taken place. Similarly, the fire service has a responsibility for overall scene safety, mitigation of hazards, and they have the expertise to search for and rescue patients from extremely difficult and hazardous circumstances. Being the first doctor and seen at a major incident is a pretty daunting experience and it can be quite overwhelming, particularly if it's going to take some time to get the additional resources that you desperately need to help your patients. I've mentioned that there are a number of possible different, different medical roles that are likely to need to be performed, with the medical incident officer probably being the most important in terms of organisation and coordination. Because of this, there's a collapsing hierarchy of the individual roles, which means that when you initially arrive, you're effectively responsible for all the different medical roles, and you're going to have to prioritise what you're going to do as a real matter of urgency. As more help and more medical personnel arrive, you can start handing off the individual roles as you're able. It's very easy when you arrive on scene to get sucked into caring for the first sick patient that you come across. And you'll often be pulled towards that patient by those that are already on scene. Although it's very difficult, you must really, really try and avoid that happening if at all possible. Your first priority is to liaise with the ambulance incident commander and the fire commander and try and get an accurate overview of what's actually going on. 
You then need to be sure that that accurate information has already been broadcast back to ambulance control. And that means that sufficient and adequate additional resources are getting passed. There's no harm and actually quite a lot of benefit in issuing an updated methane message as soon as you've got a handle on what's happening. If you don't do this, there's a high chance that you'll spend the rest of the time playing catch-up and wishing that the resources that you should have asked for were already there. If no one has already declared the situation to be a major incident, you need to go on and do this. But this is based on the best assessment that you've made, the best information available to you, and the individual circumstances that you actually find yourself in. There's often a reluctance to declare a major incident, but that's mostly for fear of being criticised or being thought to be overreacting. And that usually comes at a later stage, but that's from the armchair warriors that weren't actually there, and they use the benefit of hindsight to inform their opinions. Remember, you can only work with the information that you have to hand, and you need to make and stick by your decisions based on that information. There are a number of advantages of declaring a major incident. It means that more resources will be tasked and sent. It means that more specialist resources will be tasked. There'll be a dedicated command and control of the incident. There'll be an escalation of the command structure. And it means you avoid being behind the curve as the incident unfolds. There are some perceived disadvantages that you should take into account, however. For example, you may be causing significant impact on an already overstretched ambulance service. There is the possibility that you might be diverting resources away from other emergency work. But you need to remember that when things start to settle down and everything is starting to come under control, you can then stand down the incident and that will free up the personnel and the resources that you've commandeered. Communication can often be difficult from the scene, but I can't overstress its importance in creating full situational awareness for all that are involved. Your primary role as a medical incident officer is to liaise with the ambulance incident commander, which means that together you can establish clinical priorities, you can manage and deploy the medical resources, if any of them have actually arrived at that stage, you can link in with the receiving hospitals, and you can oversee triage and casualty dispersal. One of the things that you need to give thought to at a fairly early stage is the distribution and dispersal of the casualties. Ideally, you would like each casualty to make only one move from the scene direct to their place of definitive care. This is going to avoid further secondary transfers that are going to tie up even more of your scarce ambulance resources. I fully appreciate, though, that this might not be possible, particularly if you find yourself in a situation where the definitive care is a long, long way away. And if I haven't given you enough to think about, the same as for any other medical intervention or process, it's critically important that you record and document your decisions. There is the possibility that you may have to explain or justify your decisions to a future inquiry or other legal process that may take place. There are a number of ways to do this. If you're lucky, you may have the luxury of a logist or a note taker, but it's often easier to make contemporaneous notes using the voice recording software on your mobile phone. You can retrieve this at a later stage and you can correlate it with other easily verifiable data, such as the times of phone calls, or even better, the times of transmission of radio calls, which are the added benefit that they're automatically recorded. 
I said I would discuss a couple of major incidents that I've been involved in in the last year where I've had to act as the medical incident officer. The first was a major civil disturbance in George Square in Glasgow, which has laughingly been described as a celebration by football fans on the 15th of May when Rangers won the Scottish Premiership trophy. You've got to remember at this time that as a population, we were still banned from attending gatherings in public places. I don't actually follow football, but I'm pretty sure what I encountered was much more akin to a full-on riot than any form of celebration following a team winning a football trophy. It was a Saturday afternoon and myself and Johnny Gallier, one of the advanced retrieval practitioners, were the afternoon duty retrieval team. We'd been following the events of the day and we'd been watching things slowly escalate throughout the course of the afternoon. We'd been given information both from ambulance control and from the police that there was a good chance of trouble either at the football ground or within the city centre itself. We're also aware that our other daytime EMRS team had been tasked to a couple of stabbing incidents outside the Rangers football ground. They'd been unable to access the patients due to the large and increasingly hostile crowds that were blocking all the roads around the ground. Following the match, about 15,000 fans marched from Ibrox to George Square in the city centre with a police escort. At 17.30, we were tasked from our base at Glasgow Airport to an escalating civil disturbance in George Square and the plan was that we were to assist at the casualty clearing station that was being set up by the Ambulance Service Special Operations Response Team or SORT Team. For those of you not familiar with the geography of city centre Glasgow, this map shows George Square where the football fans eventually ended up and it shows the Glasgow Royal Infirmary which is within about three quarters of a mile of George Square, certainly within walking distance and the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital which is the major trauma centre. That's a little bit further out to, to the west of the city. We made our way from Glasgow Airport to George Square. We had a bit of difficulty getting there because a lot of the roads round about George Square themselves had already been shut down by the police or were blocked by crowds of people. When we arrived, it looked like the 15,000 fans had arrived in the square. There was a noisy, hostile crowd. They were throwing missiles. They were detonating fireworks. They were setting off flares. The casualty clearing station was being set up as we arrive and on the pavements round about that there were a few sort of drunken looking patients. This is a close-up map of the area surrounding George Square. You can see that the main riot was taking place in the square. To the east side of the square, just in front of the city chambers, there was a huge police cordon limiting access to that side of the square for all the fans. The casualty clearing station had been set up in the southeast corner of the square and the whole of Cochrane Street was being used as a rendezvous point and had multiple police, fire and ambulance vehicles parked up there. 
As we were making our approach to George Square, it became obvious that there was quite a lot of problems and it looked as if we were going to end up with a number of casualties. So we spoke to Ambulance Control and we asked at that time that they tasked the second EMRS team to come out to the casualty clearing station because we thought we were probably going to need a hand. When we arrived at the RVP, our first point of contact was the ambulance incident commander who turned out to be one of the team leaders of the SORT team who was setting up the casualty clearing station. We had quite a lot of information about what had been going on. We got information explaining what they were expecting to happen. And as you can see from the pictures, the crowd of people there were not particularly friendly. It was a pretty unpleasant place to be. There was fireworks and explosions happening at regular intervals. Shortly after we arrived, just as we were beginning to find our feet, there was a commotion at the police cordon and a couple of police medics burst through the cordon and dumped a guy in the middle of the street right in front of us. This was a chap when we had a look at him. He was chalk white. He looked peri arrest. Half of his hand was missing and there was a big hole in his epigastrium. We were told that he had been stabbed and it was fortunate just at that time our second team arrived and we immediately gave them the task of dealing with this patient and getting them loaded into an ambulance with a view to taking off to the major trauma centre at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital. As it turned out, the patient hadn't been stabbed. It appears that he had been holding some form of pyrotechnic that blew up in his hand, taking off most of his fingers and putting a hole into his upper abdomen. Given the sudden appearance of that patient without any warning and listening to the chatter on the top group, hearing about other incidents that were going on in the square and round about the square, and the fact that we had just lost our backup team by sending them with that patient off to hospital, we had a discussion amongst ourselves and decided that there was a fair chance that this was going to escalate pretty quickly and we really needed more medical resources there. We had a discussion with the ambulance incident commander and between us we decided that we would need to get some more medical resources and for us the quickest way to do that was to activate the major incident call-in for EMRS. The end result of that was that within 60 to 90 minutes I had quite a lot more medical resources. I had a team that were running the casualty clearing station I had a team within the casualty clearing station treating patients. I had a forward medical team that I could use to move into and around the square for further instance. We had a tactical medical advisor in ambulance control who was assisting with casualty distribution and dispersal. And I had three other teams available on base at Glasgow Airport who was able to rotate in to relieve the teams that we had on scene. The incident was quite prolonged and the majority of the patients were relatively minor, the sort of thing that you would expect to see in any city centre A&E department on a Saturday night. 
Although the majority of the casualties that we dealt with were relatively straightforward, there was a couple of times during the incident where there was a real risk of significant escalation. This scaffold that you can see in the picture at one point had probably about 200 drunken yobs on top of it, jumping up and down with the whole scaffold shaking. Fortunately, it didn't collapse, uh, but that was more by luck rather than design. The incident was pretty prolonged and we didn't end up standing down till just around midnight on that afternoon. In total, we probably had to deal with about 35 casualties. And I was quite happy that by the end of it, we had managed to distribute them evenly between the two main hospitals and tried as best we could to minimise the impact on any one individual department. I'm going to move on now and talk about a second incident. The first incident that I've just described was a bit of a slow burn. It was gradually escalated throughout the course of the day and finally kicked off properly in the late afternoon and lasted until the early hours of the morning, resulting mostly in nasty aggressive casualties, much more akin to the typical ED Saturday night patients I'm very much used to. The second incident had a bit more of a dramatic onset, but again, it highlights significant concerns with scene safety, complex issues regarding patient injuries, and extremely difficult decisions regarding patient disposition. Myself and Julie Cuthcart, one of the advanced retrieval practitioners, were on base at Glasgow Airport. We were tasked at 19.19 hours by ambulance control to an explosion at a domestic address in a housing estate in Ayr, probably just over 40 miles from the base. Information at that time was pretty scarce, but control were receiving multiple 999 calls, which made them think that this was a real event rather than a hoax. It was a Monday evening, sunset had been at 18.11 hours, so it was pitch dark outside, the weather was poor, and there was a low cloud ceiling. Even with the limited information that we had, this sounded like it might be the real deal. So before we left, we discussed with Control to consider calling back in the second evening EMRS team. We requested they also dispatched one of the advanced critical care paramedics that just happened to be sitting with us at the base. And we asked the air ambulance crew and the pilot to start planning for a night HEMS flight to the scene with a view to either providing us return transport with a patient or, if necessary, to bring the second team down. We set off and started driving down the M77 towards air. Probably about 15 minutes into that drive, we heard on the talk group an initial sit rep from the scene from the first ambulance that was there. The ambulance paramedic said that she had two P1 patients, two P2 patients. There was a building had collapsed and there were unknown numbers trapped in the rubble. At that point, the trauma desk at Ambulance Control initiated a major instant standby call. On hearing this information while we were still driving down the road, our mental model of what we are going to changed quite dramatically. Ten minutes later, there was a further sit rep from the same paramedic. She said that the casualty numbers were unchanged, the building was now on fire and there had just been a further explosion. At that point, the trauma desk declared a major incident for the ambulance service. 
We arrived on scene at 1958 hours, which was probably about 35 minutes after we'd set off. As we arrived, we heard over the talk group that our second team was attending in the air ambulance. Multiple other ambulance service resources were en route, and our role now had changed quite significantly from what had started off as a primary tasking to us now assuming the roles of medical incident officer, and Julie took on the role of medical incident officer advisor. The picture that you can see shows what the house looks like on a good day. This is a map of the scene. The house was at the Red Starburst. There's a paramedic response unit and a single ambulance that have managed to park fairly close to the house. We parked up about 200 metres away at the two o'clock position and that red dotted line that you can see. We walked along the road to the scene, but you need to remember this is a housing estate at night, so the roads are all partially blocked with parked cars. The incident is now surrounded with multiple fire engines and there are rocks and debris underfoot for the whole of the 200 metre walk. This picture shows what the scene looked like on the night and you can see it's a little bit different to the nice blue sky picture that we've looked at already. As we arrived on scene, we met up with the ambulance incident commander, who at that time was still the same paramedic who had broadcast the initial sit rep, and made a brief from the fire commander, who said that he was dealing with a large explosion, likely from gas, but he was keeping an open mind as to the exact cause. There was an offset block of four two-storey houses. The first house looks like it will collapse. The second house is missing. The third house has just caught fire again, and the fourth house, to all intents and purposes, looked relatively undamaged. He had identified four casualties. He said there were possibly others within the rubble, but he had no idea how many. He had firefighters tackling the fire, and they were searching for further casualties in the area where he thought it was safe to do so. Immediately after this, we were able to talk to the advanced critical care paramedic who had left the base just before us. He'd obviously driven a bit quicker than we had, as he already had had time to briefly assess the patients. The first patient was a middle-aged female. She was lying face down in the only ambulance that we actually had at that time. She had burns to her back, burns to her face. She was talking. Her observations appeared normal, but she had an impending threat to her airway from burns. The second patient was an adult male. He was lying on the ground outside of the collapsed building. He was conscious. He was bleeding from a neck wound, but appeared to have a patent airway at that time. His observations are normal, but the paramedic was suspicious that he had suffered blunt chest and abdominal trauma. He was being looked after at that point by an ambulance technician and a fireman. The third patient was a young adult male. He also was lying on the ground outside the collapsed building. He had burns to his upper torso, to his face. He was talking. His observations were normal, but he too had an impending threat to his airway from burns. He was being looked after by the fire service. The fourth patient was a child who, we were told, had an arm injury. Nobody had seen this child because the child had been removed into a neighbouring house by a bystander. This presents me with some quite difficult triage decisions. I have three patients, all in need of urgent critical care. At least two, and possibly all three, have imminent threats to their airway. You can see from the map that we're in air at the bottom left of the slide. Air Hospital is less than half a mile away. 
Air Hospital functions as a local emergency hospital in the National Trauma Network. Crosshouse Hospital is a trauma unit, but it's about 20 minutes away. And the major trauma centre in the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Glasgow is much further than that and at least 45 minutes away. There's no doubt that all the patients have injuries significant enough to merit transfer to the major trauma centre. At this time, although I have the expertise and equipment to manage a critical airway in the pre-hospital environment, I don't have the wherewithal to do this for two and possibly all three patients. My additional medical resources are en route, but they haven't arrived, and I don't think that the patients are safe to travel all the way to Glasgow without definitive airway protection. I'm not happy to hold the patients on scene until the arrival of the additional teams, given that at any time there's a real risk that the fire service are going to uncover and then present me with further critically unwell patients. This is what I was referring to earlier when I described finding yourself in a situation where you're mentally completely maxed out. The advantage I had over the scenario that I gave you earlier of being the first doctor in scene is that I had the luxury of having an advanced retrieval practitioner working with me as my advisor. I see her really as a very experienced sounding board and someone that I can trust to make sure that I don't make too many stupid decisions. Given the situation that we found ourselves in and the fact that I've got a good inside knowledge of the capabilities of the Ayrshire hospitals, we decided the most sensible thing and the most practical thing to do was start simplifying the scene by transferring the patients as quickly as we could to the trauma unit at Crosshouse. We're fully aware though that this was most likely going to result in further secondary transfers at a later stage with all the logistical problems that that was going to entail. The advantage of this plan was that as the other critical care teams start to arrive, we'll then have the resources that mean that we can manage any subsequent casualties that are discovered and we can facilitate their transfer all the way to the major trauma centre up in Glasgow in the one hop. After we started to enact the plan, I was able to talk directly to my colleagues in Crosshouse and give them advance warning that they were going to be receiving three critically unwell patients all of whom were likely to need immediate airway management, but that after that I wouldn't be sending them any further patients, as by the time that I discovered any other casualties, I should have had enough critical care teams to bypass Crosshouse and travel directly to Glasgow. I was also able to tell them that, as a bonus, the child that had not been assessed on scene was also going to arrive at Crosshouse unannounced because a member of public had bundled them into the car and was driving there directly. When I reviewed the timeline of this incident, the initial calls to the ambulance service were at 19.10. We were on scene at 19.50. Our fourth patient left the scene less than an hour later at 20.41, with all four patients in the hospital at Crosshouse receiving initial emergency airway management by 21.10. The other critical care teams arrived just after the fourth patient had left the scene, and in total I ended up with an additional four critical teams available for me to treat any casualties. As luck would have it, there were no other casualties in this incident and the additional teams weren't required. I hope you can see from these examples, being forced to manage a major incident can be quite a daunting task, but it is achievable.
You will, unfortunately, have to make difficult decisions, which are often based on incomplete information. Everybody finds this a challenge, and you'll definitely be operating on the edge of your comfort zone. It's not the way that we're used to working. You just have to embrace the uncertainty and make the most sensible decisions you can based on the information available. I hope that these examples that I've shown you have given you a bit of an insight into my thought processes and my decision-making at these recent instances. As you would expect, I've reflected quite a bit in both of them. I can't claim that I definitely got everything right, but I genuinely do believe that the decisions I made at the time were justifiable and the best that I could do based on the information that I had. I hope I've managed to give you some food for thought and I hope you don't find yourself in similar circumstances. Thanks for listening. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.